0: I was uh, told what to speak on today, and that's always hard in the beginning, because you really like to pray and let God tell you what to say, and they said, well, we'd like you to talk about this, and I'm going, well, it's something you guys all know, so maybe I can add something to what you know about this whole thing. Uh, I grew up in a, not only a non-Christian home, I grew up in an ungodly home. And our family was obviously non-Christian. I thought that um, Thanksgiving and Christmas time was a time that relatives got together to get drunk and to tell off-color stories. And, uh, I mean, that, that our family was, it was a good family in many, many ways, but it was an ungodly family. And as I, I grew up, I was a real disappointment to my dad i just wasn't what he wanted the only sports that appealed to me was swimming and my dad thought that you know is what kids do in little pools in the front yard uh it just there was nothing about me that seemed to please him and what made it even worse i had to work with him we uh, took care of movie stars uh i grew up in l.a and we took care of movie stars' homes, mowing lines and, you know, trimming the stuff. And I remember we were doing this one home. She was a silent movie star uh, who lived in this fabulous house. Her fish pond in the front yard was bigger than any swimming pool that any of the other movie stars had. This was just a fish pond. To edge the bed, you know, the bed where the lawn hits the, where the lawn stops and the flowers are, in the old days, they didn't have all this electronic stuff and zip, zip, zip. You on your hands and knees with a thing you do it like this, and on my knees, two days it took me to go around the bed in the front yard. She had a street that went back to her house with street lights. I mean, that was unique. Today, people have it, but I mean, she had street lights, and you could not see the house from the street because they had this huge privacy hedge. They went all across the front of the property and all the way up to the house. It was on a cliff that looked over the Riviera Country Club. And if you're not familiar, you're not know talking about Riviera Country Club. It's the polo place and, you know, is the place. And so she's on a cliff, overlooks this thing. This house looked like a museum. Unbelievable. You know, each room, this is the French provincial room, and this room was brought over from somewhere else, and this room was brought. it didn't look like a house at all. And, um, I mean, not a house I'd want to live in. And um, <clears throat> but it looked beautiful on the outside. Well, this big long driveway, which is hard to call a driveway, had a hedge—real high hedge. So no one could see in a property of this real high hedge that went up this whole property. And at least we had these electric shears in the old days with a big motor on them and the teeth go. You've seen those kind to do this, real heavy. And I'm doing this hedge. I worked all day in the sun just trimming the hedge. And my dad came and he looked at it and he said, you dipped right there. That's the kind of encouragement I got from my dad growing up. When I was 15 and a half and I had come to the conclusion that I couldn't do anything right, I tried to commit suicide. I'll tell you about that. I figured it all out. We had a gun, a rifle, and uh, I knew I couldn't practice, you know, with an empty rifle with my folks around. So I wasn't sure if when I put the rifle in my mouth, if my thumb would reach the trigger. <laughs> but I thought I'll use my big toe. That would do it. <laughs> well, I had it all figured out, and so uh, the rifle was kept in my mom, dad's closet behind a bunch of clothes in the back of the closet. The bullets were kept in the kitchen. And so my sister and I, it was just the two of us, went off to school. My mom went off to work. My dad went off to work. But I didn't go to school. I hid out till I saw everybody leave. And I was coming home. I was more than discouraged. You know, when teenagers want to end it all, and Ken and I have dealt with a lot of kids that where I was. They just can't see no reason going on. They feel everything is hopeless. Well, if it's hopeless, what's the point? And so I went in the... In the house and I thought, well, I should do it someplace where, you know, my mom won't have to clean up a lot of blood because, you know, I, I felt good about my mom. And so I went into the closet and I reached around behind and there was no rifle. Now, our house wasn't very big and we didn't have a lot of stuff. We were kind of, you know, average or poorer than average. And I searched the whole house. There was no rifle. I had the bullets. Oh, brother. Yeah, I didn't know God. I didn't go to church. And of course, if you don't go to church, why would you even think of knowing God? And uh, it ruined my plans. I never thought about razor blades or anything. You know, that just wasn't, in my mind was just do it quick, shoot, shoot this thing off, blow your head off, or part of it off. <laughs> Whatever brain's up there that doesn't seem to be much, maybe the bull will miss it when it goes through my head, you know? <clears throat> so I, I couldn't do it. And I thought, I can't even commit suicide. I can't do anything right. I can't trim hedges right. I can't mow lawns right. I can't even commit suicide right. It just confirmed the what? That I can't do anything right. About a year later, my dad decided to sell a rifle. And he went to get it. And he called me and said, did you take the rifle? I said, no, Dad. He said, it's not in there. And no one knew where it was. I mean, just our family only one know where it is. No one ever broke into our home. We never had, you know, that kind of people over would steal stuff. And to this day, God just caused that rifle to disappear. We never knew what ever happened to it. It just was gone. And I know that God is sovereign. And He knew that one day, I was going to receive Christ as my Savior. And God divinely intervened, even though I didn't want Him to. And didn't let me kill. My, didn't let me kill myself. Well, <clears throat> I I began to live a secret life. Um, not give you any ideas. Um, some of you could probably give me ideas. But I was living like two lives: the nice kid, and then the kid that wasn't nice. Graduated from high school. Didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Got a, went to an insurance company and got a job there for a year. My dad was an alcoholic and I thought, well, I'll be an alcoholic if I work at this place. I didn't realize I was people-oriented, but I knew that working with filing cabinets didn't turn me on. You know, just opening drawers and putting stuff in and shutting them. I like, this is, you know, this is, this is a job that would drive you, drive you to drink. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I quit that and I found out that, uh, uh, they were training lab and x-ray technicians at the Movie Star Hospital. Ah, movie stars. Ah, I'll go there. Nice place. So I was an, uh, an, in, an intern, or whatever you get. we call it? Apprentice. Good word. I was an apprentice at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, and I learned to be uh, a lab technician and x-ray technician. <clears throat> and I was really impressed. We got to, to do all the movie stars. They would come in. And I'll tell you about one movie star. Most of you would know the name anyway. <clears throat> only name only. I know you'd never have seen her. But the movie stars were never to be allowed to stay in the hallway where they had all these x-ray machines. We had private rooms for them. So they'd have the privacy. And so they told us, Marilyn Monroe's coming. And how great, I've never seen Marilyn Monroe in person. That's going to be a really good experience. And, uh, well, she was sick. You know, she had gallbladder or something. And uh, anyway, well, she didn't come. She didn't come. We kept looking for her. and kept walking up and down the hallways looking for her. She didn't come. She didn't come. And all of a sudden, we found out that this blonde was straggly straight here, very unattractive, was Marilyn Monroe. She'd been sitting in the hall for 35 minutes. You never would have known her. Paint and all that stuff transformed what she really looked like. Um, So I got through that. I still didn't know the Lord, still didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Now here I am, a lab and x-ray technician. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Got a job working for our hand specialist that put hands together in a fabulous way. I mean, he really did. He studied in Vienna, and and all he did is specialize with hands I don't know, probably none of you are x-ray technicians, but, uh, what I did in his office, I didn't know, his machine, I overexposed the x-ray, which I thought was going to get fired, or get not hired. And what it did, it showed all the grains of the bones. And that's too much. I mean, that's too much x-ray on the, it doesn't gonna, you know, it's not going to be sterile because of his hands, but, you know, it just showed all the grains, and that's too much. That's exactly what he wanted. So said, that's exactly what I want. Hire him, I don't care what you pay for him, pay, you know, get him, but hire him. So I was hired. Still didn't know the Lord. At that time, a person came into my life and witnessed. And, uh, I thought, oh, that's, they're religious. That's really neat. I've met a religious person. See, I went, uh, I went to a school in LA and I figured out in my high school, 5,000 of us went through that school I was there. I do not know of one Christian amongst those 5,000 students that went through my high school. Never met one. Later on I found one was. Because his dad was a dentist and he was working on my teeth and I saw the kid's picture. All he knew was a good kid. You know, but he didn't carry his Bible, didn't have Jesus pins. We didn't do those things in those days. So I, di- I never met a Christian. And so this guy was sharing and I thought that was neat. I'm really glad he's religious. And uh, then a year later, he came back in my life and witnessed again. And uh, he was with some navigators, uh, which is an organization that does witnessing on college campuses and servicemen and stuff. And I remember we were out in front of our house, it was 11.30 at night, and I was saying goodbye to him, and they, they went through, I don't know how many verses they dumped on me, but they dumped on all these verses, you know. And they started driving down the street, and all I could think of is, I'm gonna burn in hell. I mean, I knew I was a sinner, you didn't have to convince me. You know, that, that I knew that I probably qualified, you know, to get saved, uh, but I wasn't sure how you do it. But I knew that I didn't want to go to hell, and somehow I just knew I was going to hell. And so I, I chased the car and yelled, Stop! 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 And they screeched the brakes. They're probably praying, you know, because they're going out of my life. I wouldn't know how to contact any of these guys. And uh, they stopped and I said, i got to get saved. I don't know whatever it is, but i got to get it because I'm going to hell. you know, And I, and I don't want to go there. And they said, good. I mean, good you don't want to go there, and good you know you're going. <laughs> so... Are you clapping because I was going to hell? <laughs> what a weird group! Yeah, y'all look like Mormons anyway. <laughs> I heard that in the big arena. But anyway, so um, <clears throat> so the guy said, "I'll come back on Saturday night." So he came back and and he led me to Christ in my bedroom. He told me exactly what to do. And because uh, why about I go to church? I mean, as an unsaved guy, why about I go to church? I think what's tragic today is they're designing the church to reach the world, which God says what is perverted. Let's say the world cancer. I can't think of the other word. Perverted in something. Horrible words. He talks about the world, and that's what Tozer says. If you're going to go and try to get the perverted and the ungodly or whatever, it's worse words than that in the King James. Into your church, what are you going to have to do to get them in? You're going to have to pervert an ungodly service. You know, in my days when I went to church, you didn't have the dancing girls and the ones that swallowed the mics. And drummers. You know, they were down at the joints. So some of the joints have better music now than they got in the churches. But anyway. So I got on my knees and I prayed. And I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And when I got through praying, this guy was there with me. And uh, he said, what happened? I said, Nothing. He said, what did you expect? Angels? And I said, I don't know. Bells? I said, I don't know. But I expected something. Now I'm real feeling oriented. Can you tell? And I'm kind of emotional. And uh, I mean, it was just the most dead experience that you could have. There wasn't tears. There was nothing. And the guy took me to First John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the record. That God hath given you eternal life. He that hath the Son, what? hath life, and he hath not the Son, and God had not life. He said, do you have the Son? I said, I think so. He said, do you think God's a liar? I said, no, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I wasn't a theologian. You know, the second Christian I ever met, that witnessed to me. I wasn't really heavy into the King James yet. And uh, <clears throat> so he, he gave me the assurance right there. I had no emotional experience. You know why God didn't give me an emotional experience? Because the emotions stopped and Logan would wonder wondered if he was lost again. I have never doubted my salvation after he confirmed it with the word of God. Never. I haven't always lived right. Three months after being a Christian, I went in the army. How would you like to go in the army? Three months after you're a Christian. You know, it's not conducive to godliness. (laughs) Been to church two or three times. And here I'm in the army. Down in El Paso, Texas which is right across the river from Juarez. And Juarez is one of the real wicked, evil places. And so on the weekends, the guys come in and say, Hey, Logan, come on down to Juarez with us. Money, loose women, you know, all this stuff is down there. And I thought, well, the two or three Christians I've ever met, I don't think drank and ran around with loose women. I don't think Christians do that. So I said, I can't go. So it was really interesting. No one said, you know, if you're a Christian, there's ten things you can't do. You can't kiss girls. You know, you can't chew gum. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You get the list. I didn't have any list. All I had was the Holy Spirit. You're better off with of the list than the Holy Spirit. He'll do a number on you. Lists don't. And so I knew, I knew that wouldn't be right. Then they asked me, why don't you go to the bars? So I finally said, I'll go to a cocktail club, but not a bar. See, bars are dives in a cocktail place. is usually in a in a hotel in the real first class. I'll go. And I used to drink all the time, but I'll get a Coke. So I'm sitting there, I have a Coke, and it has an orange and a cherry or something sticking out of the Coke. And my Coke looks like everybody else's stuff. I thought, well, you know, if people walk by here and take a look, I don't think they're going to think that I'm a Christian. How are they going to know? Maybe I ate the cherry off of it, they'll think I'm a Christian and have you seen orange in there? You know. No. So I thought, well, probably... Christians don't do this. And God confirmed it. Give me peace about it. Well, what are you going to do? You know, I'm not going to go over into the Mexico with all the evil there. I can't go to the cocktail with these guys. And I'm all alone. And, and I hadn't got heard God say how to stand alone. You know, no one taught me about Daniel. I didn't know Daniel was even in the Bible. And I remember I was just starting to read the scripture. I hadn't read much. And they said, well, what about movies? Oh, I love movies. go to movies all the time because I was depressed. you go to movies... See, movies is is a form of entertainment. It's also a form of amusement. And amusement is very interesting. It's an interesting word. Awe is not, and amuse is think. So amusement causes me what? Not to think. So I go to movie after movie. If you live in, in L.A., all these movie theaters downtown. Now you guys have all these, you know, 17 movies in one building, theaters, but you just could go to all these big theaters, and I... For 15 cents or so I i to go from one to another. Because I'd have to think about how how sad I was. So here I'm now a believer. And they said, let's go to a movie. So I said, okay. And the movie was Niagara. Don't rent it. Don't get it. Uh, it was Marilyn Monroe. Well, I'd met her. You know, in the hallway with her stringy hair. So uh, I'll go see her. So uh, I'm sitting in this movie theater. Watching Niagara. And it starts out. And uh, Marilyn Monroe is in bed. And she begins to... Wake up. And it was very lewd. I go, oh no. There's something about a rapture or a rupture they told me about. <laughs> Jesus is gonna come back. Well, he sure went looking at this theater for a Christian. And I prayed, oh God, don't come back. You'll miss me. <laughs> No, this is the introduction of what they told me to talk about. They didn't tell me to talk about this. <laughs> but anyway, what do I do with my watch? I'll go on forever. <clears throat> yeah, we better get into it. But anyway, this is all introduction. Something the Holy Spirit said for you, movies aren't right. I don't have any problem. I was so convicted, I knew that that was wrong. and It was a good movie for me to see. It was just, Sort of dirty. That's all I needed. As a Christian, I just thought, Christians, don't do this. Well, anyway, I um, after I got saved, I still had a major problem in my life. I had a lot of them. I had a lot of personal moral failure. And you guys know what I'm talking about without saying the word. I um, um, had to drop all my friends, which is really hard. I, you know, I, I was, like, empty. But the one thing I wasn't empty of was hatred towards my father. Getting saved did not remove the hatred towards my father who rejected me. And so um, got in the army, I uh, protected the North Woods. I was, uh, on a group, we had, uh, cannons up there and all this stuff to protect the locks of Sault Ste. Marie, and the reason the North Woods was never bombed is because Logan protected it. <laughs> That's what I tell Bill. One of the he got this place, I was stationed up here, but of course I was just a medic. <laughs> <But> anyway, <clears throat> I was attracted to a very godly young lady. And she felt she should come clean with her past evil moral life. It was my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time. And when she was fifteen, she decided she would backslide. And so she put on some red fingernail polish, some red lipstick, and went to three movies. That's the wicked woman. I'm married to her. That was her wickedness. She rebelled. She was in a holiness church and she just rebelled, you know, for three weeks or whatever. I married a very godly, wonderful woman. And it was there that God called us to ministry. I was in the army. Uh, my wife and I announced our engagement. And that night they gave an invitation, full-time service, and God called us to ministry. I'm still bitter. I go off to one of the finest Bible colleges in that day. Went to that school. Went all the way through that school. Graduated. Bitter. Well, when you pastor your church, they'll get rid of your Bitterness. Haven't you ever read Hezekiah? It says so. So I pastored this my first church. I was still bitter. Not only was I bitter, I had a horrible fear of rejection. Horrible. You wouldn't know it because I covered it up by being outgoing. But inwardly, the thing I feared more than anything is that somebody would reject me. So here I am pastoring out in Nowhere, California. I mean it is nowhere. If you sneeze when you drive through the town, you missed it. <clears throat> we had four hundred and eighty people, sixty miles one way, eighteen miles another, twelve miles another, forty miles, you understand it was out there nowhere, and it was cowboys and loggers. When I and don't I look like a cowboy and a logger? <laughs> I got out, you know, I was still out of I was in my prime. I was six foot tall and I weighed 145 pounds. Soaking wet. (laughs) And I thought, why did God stick me up here? I got all these manly men. Their muscles had muscles. (laughs) You know, I don't relate to cowboys and loggers. I mean, you, you can't believe what these characters are like. One guy came home at night and he was drunk. His wife locked the door. So he took out his pistol this is a guy in town, shot the lock off, kicked the door open, so don't ever do that again. <clears throat> we had very little juvenile delinquency problems in that town. <laughs> they didn't have the elders beat him, they just shot him by the creek. <laughs> but the horrible thing about being in that town is people died. Must have been in the water, I don't know what it was. But people died. I was there for five years, and I had 55 funerals. And guess what happened when you had a funeral in that town? Everybody came. And here I have a fear of what? Rejection. And you have a whole town, cowboys I've never seen. All these characters coming. Like, the brother. I would be at the house, ready to throw up. My funeral messages were so wonderful. My next book is 55 Most Wonderful <laughs> Funeral Messages. <laughs> I mean, I really worked on them. I hated Christmas, Easter, and funerals. Because strangers came. And they might reject me. I'd be at the house, I'd be sitting, and well, i says, they're playing just as I am the 40th time. You better get over there. You know, the body's there. The church is full of flowers. People are outside the building. They can't get in. This is a country church. And the pastor's throwing up. <laughs> I would get over there and I would deliver my great funeral message. And I'd lean over the pulpit and I wanted to say, would you move over? I need to lay down. <laughs> <laughs> then we had to go out to the cemetery and do the dust to dust and the ashes to ashes thing. You know, I have another message out there. And these people came all the time. So here I was having all the struggle with rejection. It was just horrible. But I was no threat to any of these loggers and they all got to start getting saved. It's unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what happened at a little Nothing town. Our testimony was all Northern California. Don't go to Aiden, California. Don't get a job with the, the logging or the mills because you'll get converted. <laughs> I mean, the guys that were, I mean, you should see these guys witness. They never went to these tactful witnessing schools. We had one guy, when they come in, this guy was so muscular. When they come in to dump their logs in the logging pond, you know, you've seen truckloads of logs on the, you haven't? Yeah, there's a few good guys here. You know, lo- logs on the logging trip. This guy jump up on the truck and reach in and say, You going to heaven or hell? <laughs> I want you in church Sunday. And the church went from being a little old ladies' church to filled with all these cowboys and loggers. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I got to tell you something. Let me tell you something. This is me. Well, just before we left, one of the guys that lived 18 miles. There's no houses out there. 18 miles to his house. He had a big ranch. And I asked him one time, I said, well, how much land do you own? He said, you're not supposed to ask that question. It's like asking somebody how much money you got in the bank. But he said, take a look. As far as you can see, I own it. He had thousands of heads of cattle. Well, he moved right next door to us. He retired. His sons are going to take over the ranch. And we had a blizzard. Everybody on the ranch thought he was at the house in town. Everybody in town thought he was out there. And they just ran, you know, just one little telephone line out there. And then it come down. Why he did this, I don't know, because his parents came there in a covered wagon. I mean, he knew this area. They had the typical ranch house that you'd, you know, really want. You know, like the ranch houses of the old days, they had it. Unbelievable place, Beautiful. He was driving his four-wheel Jeep. It went into the snow and got stuck because it was a really bad blizzard. And he got out and he walked into town. Well, after the blizzard stopped, they saw his dog, which the closest thing to that road was the school. They saw his dog and his dog had run out. And they could see he walked in a circle until he froze to death. And his dog stayed with him. And I had that funeral just before I left. I mean, I was going to leave. They were going to move me out, and the funeral was just before that. When I had the funeral, all these cowboys were in there. You know what I preached on? The dog. And I preached on this dog. Now, I'll tell you, you kick a cowman or sheepman's dog, you're liable to get shot. They need those dogs. Now, they're not lap dogs. They're working dogs. And it's awesome to watch those dogs nip the the cattle, and you can herd cattle with dogs. Herd sheep with dogs is amazing. Unbelievable. Well, anyway, I preached on this dog. And I preached how that dog stayed right with him in that store. Man, you should have seen those old cowboys. I know none of you saw Marlboro ads. but You know, the old weather-beaten face and stuff. That was these congregations, you know, with white right here, because the cowboy hats are here, and they take them off. It's all white, and the rest <laughs> is all dark. <clears throat> Tears run down their cheeks. Talking about that old dog. And then I said, he wasn't alone. There's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And I told him about Jesus and gave an invitation. And when I left, when I stood at the door and these old guys went out, one old cowboy looked at me, never came to church except when people died. And he said, Logan, I hear you're leaving. I said, you're right. So it's a shame you're just getting good <laughs> well, pastoring in church for five years didn't get rid of my bitterness. Well, I wasn't bitter. I mean how can a pastor say he's bitter? How can a pastor say he hates his dad? you know i, I I baptized it. I started to resent him. Doesn't that sound better? You know, it's more socially acceptable. I started to resent my dad. I just changed words, but not what was going on inside. I'd meet my dad, and my stomach would turn over. Because we always argued. If my dad, you know, said, Well, I really think we ought to vote for so-and-so. And I said, Dad, I think you're right. He'd switch candidates. I mean, we were never together that we did not argue. Now, here, I am his religious son. And we argue still and fight. I hated going home, but they wanted to see our kids growing up. Well, then I get my second church. Now, maybe because if you're in a country church, you know, you can't get rid of bitterness. But you get a church in the city, you'll get rid of bitterness, right? Didn't work. i still bitter in this church. And then some jerk comes to town. Charging to hear him preach the gospel. I said, this is ridiculous. I wouldn't go hear anybody that's charging for his ministry. That makes me sick. I never heard of it in my life. Billy Graham doesn't charge. Well, he came again six months later. And I said, I'm not going to go hear this guy. This is ridiculous. Charge it. So well, you can go back free the second time. You know, I'm a man of the cloth. You know, give me a break. Well. A guy said, if you go and you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. So I went. It was in a church. And the guy was short. Unbelievable. And he had a stand on tables. They took tables like this. And they had four tables, put tables, and then a blackboard. And he's writing his stuff on a blackboard. Writing his charts in chalk on a blackboard. And uh, he said something. The first night, that really turned me off. I knew this guy was out of the pit. I wondered what school he went to. Do you know what that guy had the nerve to say? He said that God put me in my family. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't put a kid in a family where he wasn't wanted I knew all the pain I had in my life. I knew the drinking. I knew the immorality. I knew the suicide. I knew all why that was. Because I could not get my dad's approval. And God wouldn't do that. You know what kept me from trying to kill myself a second time? Maybe in a demon thought, but it was a good one. And that is you're adopted. Because I'm tall, my dad's short. I thought, that's it. I'm adopted. And I'll find the papers. So I'm not related to them. Maybe my mom, but obviously this guy's not, maybe I was illegitimate or something, that'd be great, you know. Just as long as this guy isn't my dad, I can handle it. So, you know, I'm believing that I'm adopted and it's fine. And then Gothard said, oh, I told you who it was. Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't know who it was, I know, I'm sure. Anyway, Gothard said, God put you in his home. Well, a number of us ministers got together. And we got together, we got together to prove that Mr. Gothard was teaching heresy. Well, you guys know what the seven principles are, but when he taught us, it was all confused. We couldn't even figure out what the seven principles were. It was isn't the smooth thing that you guys are seeing today. We had the basic youth in one week. We also had the advanced seminar in one week. We also had the financial seminar in one week. And we also saw the life of John Wesley in one week. The same amount of time you guys get one basic youth, we got all of that stuff in one week. I mean, you know, I mean, he fried my brain. And it was all confused. I mean, each issue wasn't confusing, but we can figure out what are the principles. Sit down. Some guys are always nosing in on your stuff. You see him holding up the sign? (laughs) Said, "Shut up." (laughs) Uh, Well, I better wind this up. Well, I knew that if what this man is saying is true. And see, when you have a real problem in your life, you don't want to hear that stuff. and You want to find all fault you can with it. Because if what he's saying is true, guess what? We had to change. And the hardest thing in the world to do is what? Change. Even though I didn't like hating my dad. I didn't know how to get rid of it. And so, there's some things I've learned a lot more about how to get rid of bitterness. The first thing that God was trying to teach me was in Peter, that when you go through the fires of life, they can be a purifying experience, as gold is purified. And what I had to do what Jesus did to get rid of my bitterness. There was other people, my dad was so big, the others were so insignificant, in a sense, to the big hatred I had. So I had to do 1 Peter chapter 2. I had to do what Jesus did. Commit those that hurt me to the Father. Take that situation and just put it in God's hands. The second thing I didn't realize, that my bitterness allowed me to be demonized. And a lot of my bondages that I had, that I really felt I should stop doing, I couldn't deal with it because I gave ground to Satan. Because you know Matthew 18... If you have bitterness or resentment in your heart, you get, you, you'll be turned over to who? The tormentors. Uh, a, a parallel passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's interesting. I met a, I had a friend here years ago. Uh, Jeff Christensen. And Jeff Christensen, I prayed with him and he used to do overheads for Bill. He backslid and sent me his picture. To show guys that want what he wants. It's a picture of Jeff standing like this. And it's a picture he took qualifying for Mr. America. You don't usually see ATI kids on front of magazines with the muscle stuff. Well, anyway, Jeff backslid. And what it says in Second Corinthians, he's, he's now walking with the Lord and youth pastor. Really neat guy. But he went, he was shooting his rear end with steroids. He said it was like a pincushion. And, uh, when he stopped the steroids, he lost 40 pounds of muscles and said he was puny. I said, Jeff, you've never been puny. I used to tease him all the time. I said, you have a waist like a girl. You know, it's like this. You get him to waist like a real man. You know, look. <laughs> well, the scripture says, if you're bitter, you give Satan the advantage. It's like I'm wrestling with Jeff. None of you guys here stand a chance. Maybe that's why you're having constant defeat in your life. Because you have resentments and bitterness towards someone you've never let go of. The last thing is in Ephesians 4. And Ephesians 4 says if we're bitter, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. How can I be successful in a spiritual battle if I'm grieving the Holy Spirit? You know, here I gave you Satan the muscle, grieving the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to make it, guys. And there's two things you have to do there, and now I'll quit. The first thing is in my book. The second thing I thought was so obvious I didn't put it in the book, and I should have. But the first one is this: a willingness to live the ongoing consequences of the offender's actions. I have, I've been counseling ATI guys like you guys for 12 years. We've had ATI kids come to me that have HIV. One of them I just saw recently, and he's going into AIDS. He got it by the time he was 18. Now he's 28. I love the guy, he loves me, and he's losing his mind at 28 years of age. When he asked God to forgive him and to take the bitterness out of his heart towards the fellow, he was involved with fellows, a fellow that he had sex with, he still had AIDS. After he prayed. Because you get rid of bitterness does not mean necessarily you get rid of what? The consequences. Sometimes there's ongoing consequences of the sin. And I have to be careful I can be bitter all over again if I don't let go of it. And this, the last thing is this. A willingness to live with the offender. And the most potential people that you have have resentments towards are your mom and dad or your family. And we'll deal with young men in my office that weep. I understand how they feel about their dad and the dads put them down and used words and all this stuff. They're weeping. They pray through this. They walk out in the waiting room. Do- Dr. Coffee tells tell the same thing. And the dad's like, well, sure hope you got straightened out or whatever. And I'm going, oh, Brother. I'm sure I told this kid he's got to be willing to live with who? The offender. Just because I release somebody to God and forgive them from my heart does not mean that they'll change. And guys, I'm kind of glad they told me to speak on this. If you leave Knoxville bitter, you don't qualify as a wise man. The enemy will use that to take great advantage in your life and you'll live a defeated life. Just identify, ask the Spirit of God to show you who you're holding feelings towards that aren't right and just release that person to God. Release what they did. Sometimes it's painful. That's forgiving from the heart. And then be willing to go back in that situation and as best as you can daily get God's grace to live in a situation or maybe even as an ATI kid you don't sense you're wanted. I know how you feel. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of speaking to these young men. And Lord, there may be some guys here that are really hurting, and you know it. They have some real pain in their life because of what people have said or what people have done. And Lord, I ask your Holy Spirit would do his job, and that is to convict of sin. Just bring to mind, Father, those that they know, and you may already have, that they need to let go of. Uh, Lord, that Satan would no longer have an advantage over the light. You said, don't let the sun go down on your anger or you give place to the devil. So minister in their hearts, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.